What's up, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Tuesday Talks. Shout out to DJ Sofa. Another amazing set to kick us off. I'm Ryan Shepard. I'm hosting today with Ladarian Gillette. Happy Black History Month to everyone. Um, we're excited to be closing out the month of February with an amazing conversation about Black history, culture, and voices. It's been a fantastic slate of Tuesday Talks so far this month. So let's get right into it. The CARE Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space, programs, and support systems to connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges by exploring compelling topics. We hope that each week our participants leave with a deeper understanding of the issues that we explore and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we center the leadership of women, and we especially look to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programming. And so, as I mentioned, uh, every February in the U.S., we celebrate Black History Month. It serves as both a celebration and a powerful reminder that Black history is American history, Black culture is American culture, and Black stories are essential to the ongoing story of America, the broader diaspora, and our world. Shining a light on Black history today is as important to understanding ourselves and to growing as it ever has been. That's why it's essential that we take time to celebrate the innumerable and immeasurable contributions that Black people have made to honor the legacies and achievements of generations past, to reckon with centuries of injustice and to confront those in ways that are still persistent today. So in today's conversation, we'll give space to an amazing and pioneering group of women who are highlighting black history, culture and voices through their work and achievements. So let me introduce you to our panelists today. First, I want you to meet Dr. Beverly Guy Sheftal. Dr. Beverly Guy Sheftal is the founding director of the Women's Research and Resource Center and Anna Julia Cooper Professor of Women's Studies at Spelman College. For many years, she was a visiting professor at Emory University's Institute for Women's Studies, where she taught graduate courses in women's studies. She's published a number of texts with African-American and women's studies, which have been noted as seminal works by other scholars. Dr. Guy Sheftal, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, I'm very happy to be here. I'm personally excited to be in conversation <laughs> with y'all. I'm a, a 2008 Morehouse graduate and you oh. are absolutely a hero in the AUC. So this oh. is a particularly special moment for me uh, to be thank with you. you today. So thank you for joining us. Next, I want you all to meet Monica Carrillo. Monica is an Afro-Peruvian poet and activist. She is from the community of Chincha, Peru. She holds a degree in journalism from the National University of San Marcos in Peru and received her degree in political journalism and cultural analysis from the University of Antonio Ruiz Montoya in Lima. Monica, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. It's very nice to have this opportunity to celebrate the Black History Month and our African identity. Absolutely. We're excited to be in community with you today and to learn from your insights. Next, I want to introduce you to Suki Jefferson. Suki is a Seattle native and proud graduate of Spelman College. In 2016, she became a self-taught candle maker and founded an exotically scented soy candle brand, which now sells nationally in over a dozen retail stores. 
In May of this year, she's expanding her operation to Atlanta, where she will continue to provide jobs and opportunities for young women of color. Suki, welcome to Tuesday Talks. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, good morning. I'm excited to see all these amazing faces. I wish all of my Zooms could start with a little DJ set like that. It does <laughs> something special, right? It sets the vibe. Shout out to DJ Sofa. He is the secret sauce to Tuesday Talks. You realize that every single time. <laughs> Thank you all for being with us. So let's get right into it. So we Tuesday Talks, it's a casual conversation. We like to keep it informal. So the first thing that we ask our speakers to do is to tell us a little bit about the communities that you call home and the communities that you're advocating for through your work. Let's hear from Suki, Monica, then Dr. Guy Sheftal. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful question to reflect on. Um, and it's actually interesting. I'm staring at a picture of my family. I keep them right above where I'm, my workstation here. So my mother's from Switzerland, uh, originally uh, moved to the US in the 80s. And uh, my father is from Kansas City, Missouri, uh, African-American from Kansas City, Missouri. And so our household was sort of this blend of um, different regions and dialects and culture and food and community. Um, and, uh, you know, we were, I was born and raised here in Pacific Northwest in Seattle, Washington area. So um, for those that are from this region and know that that time was special, um, you know, it was sort of before gentrification hit the central district of Seattle and pushed many of the families further south. So, um, you know, I, I think I, I sort of grew up in this um, era where, you know, we were sort of exploring what our multicultural connections were and sort of having this dual citizenship and this dual relationship to being both an American, but also having a Swiss parent. Um, so, you know, I think those are connections that still that still I hold really dear um, and that it's exciting to see more people, particularly from our class and from, um, you know, from our generation, really researching and reestablishing re connections with some of those ancestral roots. Absolutely. And thank you for being with us today. Monica, what about you? What communities do you call home? Who are you advocating for through your work? Mm, I am from Peru, so I am Afro-Peruvian. My community, my parents, grandparents, we are from Ica, Chincha, which is located in the south. There was a former plantation of cotton. Uh, so my ancestors is, they are mainly based in that area. Uh, I, am, I founded 20 years ago an organization with a collective of young people and Right now, I live between Peru and New York, and I am very connected, and I feel very supported by the African-American and Afro-Caribbean community in the US, which was something amazing, because I think that they have the opportunity to learn and also to bring back home some ideas and perspectives from the African-American community that were really a, a contribution for the vision and the strategies that we developed in Peru. Excellent, thank you for being with us. We're excited to hear more about the organization and the way that you're building bridges uh, between the two communities that you call home. Dr. Guy Sheftal, what about you? What communities are home for you? Who are you advocating for? Okay, before I say that, can I say hello to Suki, my Spelman sister. I'm also a Spelman <laughs> alum. And can I also say to Monica, I've been to Peru uh, for a conference and spent some time uh, uh, with the Afro-Peruvian community. So I wanna say that not many of us uh, have, have been to Peru, we usually go to Brazil. So happy to have this uh, cross-cultural, cross-generational um, uh, opportunity today. So my communities are big given my elder status. So it begins, of course, in Memphis, Tennessee, my home. Uh, 
I see myself as a child of the civil rights movement. I grew up in the Jim and Jane Crow South of the 50s. I came to Spelman uh, in the 60s at the height of the student protest movement. So, so I always began with my family and civil rights. And then my, my uh, community is also very definitely women's liberation movements here and around the globe. Uh, and then lastly, I'm an ally of the LGBTQ movement here and around the globe. So civil rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights. Excellent. So let's actually start right there, Dr. Guy Chateau. I'm familiar with uh, a bit of your work and obviously I've had the chance to hear from you over the years and during my time in the AUC, but for the broader audience and for folks who might not be as familiar, talk to us a little bit about the history and the impact of Black feminist discourse on social justice movements throughout the U.S. and globally. Okay, so, so let, let me say why I was drawn to Black feminist political activism, scholarship, and teaching. Uh, much of the African-American history that I learned was focused primarily on men. So we learned about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. So when I came to Spelman to teach in 1971, I became very aware of the fact, and this would not have been surprising, that mo most of what my students knew about Black people was about Black men. So I started, did my first book, which was called Sturdy Black Bridges, Visions of Black Women in Literature. And I wanted to uncover, make visible our very vibrant African-American literary and political tradition. And I'm, I'm reminded of Alice Walker, who was also a student at Spelman, and she had never heard of Zordia Hurston. Uh, and this is not because she was at Spelman, but it's because the curriculum was focused, I mean, in the entire US economy on European, primarily men. And if we did African-American, that would have focused on men too. So I was very interested in having us understand that black women have been centrally involved in race liberation and women's liberation. And I'll just mention one other point, which is hard to imagine. Even though I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, I had never heard of Ida Wells Barnett main anti-lynching crusader. I hadn't even heard of Ida Wells Barnett in college. So I wanted to make visible all of the ways in which black women had contributed to liberation in general uh, around race and gender. And I spent much of my scholarship uh, doing that. And the, the book I'm proudest of is Words of Fire, which traces black feminist thought from 1832, amazingly, 1832, up until the uh, 70s or 80s. And I'll just mention one other thing, which I think is very, very important. We now talk about intersectionality, all of the ways in which racism and sexism and heterosexism are interconnected. It was 19th century Black women, Anna Julia Cooper, Ida Wells, who talked about the connections between those isms, but we didn't necessarily know that. So that's what I've been trying to do uh, since I was first teaching at Spelman College in the English department. I love it. And we appreciate the, your contributions and, and everything that you're doing to continue to advance that work. Um, so, so Monica, I want to build on some of what Dr. Guy Sheftal referenced, and that's kind of the role of these movements in helping to change lived experiences for people um, in order to advance kind of social justice, but particularly the way that women have contributed to these movements and Black women have, have contributed. You founded an organization in Peru that looks to do just that. 
to mobilize folks for social and political change and using policy as an arm. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your organization and how you and other women are advancing uh, your goals. Mm, sure, I, I am one of the founders of the organization. I am not a director anymore, but I can talk on behalf of the organization because I am still, you know, a member. Uh, we started the group 20 years ago in a context where in Peru there was a growing discussion about feminisms, about women's organizations, but we felt that there was no, no understanding of the particularities of the Afro-descendant women. So back then we wanted to create a group with a feminist perspective that we have in our statement that we are supporting and working with the LGBTQ community and also open to work with indigenous people. So we always have an intergenerational, intersectional and interethnic perspective. So because of that reason, we were able to influence in the feminist movement. We were the first organization in Peru that were, uh, we were talking about the intersection between gender violence and racism. And along the years, we were able to achieve some specific reforms, uh, specifically related to uh, the rights of black women. But something that I would like to address is really we started with a band of poetry and music. We didn't have money. We were not really... Um, professional musicians. I am a poet, everybody, you know, we like to perform, not as a performing for someone else, as a members of a community. When we are dancing, we are writing. While we are writing, we are praying. So we don't have this division between dance and music. This is something that we are always doing. We were performing and collecting money to do the political work. So the first workshop that we organized in Chincha, the name was Come Back to Our Roots, was with the first money that we got after a performance. And that was something that I would like to, to mention, no? because for us to be artists is we have the capacity to think beyond the box. We always are dreaming on a reality that maybe we don't have right now, but because we are dreaming, because we are artists, we decided that we want to achieve our dream. So we decide to implement strategies that were not traditional or typical in our Peruvian context. Not that kind of an explanation. Yes, yes, that's perfect. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's inspiring to see kind of the intersection of all of these things, of the arts, uh, using voices to advance and change policy, to highlight different identities and narratives. Um, I think we hear a lot from our speakers in Tuesday talks about how these different gifts and these different tools are useful to advance our shared goals. Um, so Suki, you're doing some very fascinating things in the space of entrepreneurship, which is also kind of an amazing space. There's an amazing legacy of Black people in this country and all around the world um, who have gone on to make amazing strides in the business sector. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your journey. What are you learning as you build your business? What are some things that you're proud of, some challenges? Give us kind of the bigger picture. Yeah, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, it's it's actually interesting um, feeding off a little bit of what Monica's talking about, about the notion of, of feeling into or thinking outside of the box. Um, you know, I always say that my business uh, was the answer to a longstanding prayer. Um, it was, you know, I sort of went through Spelman, spent a little bit of time of traveling through Brazil and Africa, came back to the States, did grad school in the Bay Area, 
and then uh, I moved to LA and I, and I got my first big girl job. You know, this is what I thought I was supposed to do. The culmination of all this academic experience and travel and education. I thought you're supposed to distill this into your professional adult career first job. And, um, you know, I, I really began to feel in the early parts of my, of my professional journey, this disconnect between um, my values, my, my ethics, what felt um, like harmony and balance in my life versus the work that I was doing, you know? And um, it was, you know, much to the credit of my time at Spelman of really learning that, um, you know, where there is not a table uh, or a seat at, at the table, uh, go ahead and create your own path to do so. And that's exactly what I did. Um, you know, I felt like, um, you know, this wasn't enough and I felt like I deserved more and I was no longer asking for permission. I really was excited about carving out my own path and the idea of entrepreneurship and generating independent sources of income and then also creating opportunities for other women in that journey um, became increasingly inspiring for me. So self-taught uh, candle maker back in 2016, I literally taught myself this craft in my kitchen, coming home after work, I'd spend hours in my kitchen sort of working on DIY projects, uh, trial and error, I kept my head down for two years um, and really refined this craft and really felt like I was coming back to life, you know, coming back into my body again. There wasn't this sort of this imposter syndrome that was really traumatic to the body and, and emotionally going into some of these corporate spaces. Um, and so, you know, it, it seems like it was a, a divine path and destiny for me to do this because uh, the demand has always been higher than my supply since the day that I started, uh, which is a blessing. And I love what I do. You know, I'm able to be creative. I'm able to use my hands to make a, a product that people enjoy. Um, so I was able to bring the business back home here to Seattle and uh, expand into about 13 different stores and sell nationally. Um, but I think the thing that I'm probably the most proud of is that now that there is uh, revenue and interest and community around what I've built, I now have the opportunity to be deliberate about who I bring into my organization and how I craft my, my hiring um, and employment um, such that it's uh, a space that's reflective of something that I would have needed to feel empowered. So I'm able to hire black women, I'm able to hire women of color, I'm able to hire disenfranchised folks, I'm able to hire refugees. This is something that's important to me because it's beyond just crafting a, a high quality luxury candle. Yes, that's part of self-care. Yes, that's part of what we're building, but we're building a space for women to feel fully recognized in their authentic self. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an exciting time for entrepreneurship. It sort of feels like this renaissance era of people being excited and stepping into their creativity and, and that there's, you know, there's a world out there that's receptive to it. I, I happened to pick a product that worked well in a pandemic where everybody was sitting at home and wanted to, <laughs> you know, wanted, wanted to enhance their space. So in many ways, I was fortunate. <laughs> I love it. And congratulations. That, that's an amazing story. It's truly inspiring. Um, and I think it's cool to hear how kind of the, uh, you know, kind of the legacy and like the identities and the things that you're passionate about are infused in the ethos of the business and the way that you bring it to bear. And that, that gets me thinking about something, Dr. Guy Sheftal, I love your input on. And that's kind of the power of storytelling, the power of identity, the power of narratives. It's a theme that always comes up here on Tuesday Talks. And so I wonder what you see as kind of the, the power of storytelling and shaping the next generation uh, of people, especially in telling the stories of black women and of black girls. So, so let, let, let's, let's start with uh, 
that that is our ancestral legacy that is coming from uh, the motherland, uh, which relied on oral tradition and storytelling. And I think all of us on this panel can can probably remember that much of what we learned about what it means to be black came from the stories we heard us uh, in our living rooms and around kitchen tables growing up. I mean, I, I think about the fact that, that my grandfather who was born in the horrendous place of Mississippi uh, in, the, in the early 1900s talked to us about uh, growing up uh, walking to school barefoot, walking miles past white schools to a black school barefoot, but how important it was for him to get to that school, even though it was inadequate. And so we grew up hearing stories about not just the pain of being black, but also triumphs. And one of the stories that he told us, which was hard to believe, was that there were a group of black men who, who went around in, 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 in Mississippi and punished white people who were doing bad things to us and they never were uh, caught. So hearing that story, uh, in addition to the barefoot story said to me that we can resist uh, if we have courage and commitment. So stories are extremely important, I think, to, to oppressed peoples. And we have that tradition coming from Africa. Yes, and, and that actually is a perfect segue to, uh, Monica, the work that you're doing, because uh, everything that you do around poetry, at least part of it, leans into this idea of oral traditions and oral storytelling. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about why you chose that medium and tell us a bit about um, the effects that it's had um, pushing for political transformation in Korea. Sure. Uh, I'm coming from a lineage of family that is cultivating poetry and music in one branch, poetry in another music. And I combined poetry and music because I performed my poetry with a band of musicians. Uh, but something important about me, I was trained since I was three years old to recite poetry, to, mem to, rem uh, to memorize poetry. So when I decided to write, I always think oh, I need to tell my poetry. And that was connected to so something very traditional. In my community, people share the poetry in a circle. First, because back then, many people, they didn't go to the school. So you really should tell your poetry because many, of, many members of the humanity of the family, they were not able to read, but they memorize and they storage the poetry here. It's very connected to the griot, no sense. And also in a community set up, you have usually children, elders, young people, everybody's there. So you need to create something that can touch the hearts of someone who is maybe a baby, but also an elder. So this is why for me was very important because especially if you are a poet in this community set up, your responsibility is to tell and to share maybe tradition, but also to reframe you know, or to frame the political and the cultural discourse. And because of that, I think that I always I was realizing that how important it is to be trained in this capacity of communicating something well and clear. So along the years, I was using the poetry also as a way to defend myself against the racist bullying in the school, because Peru is a very racist country, especially against black people. Um, I would like maybe to mention uh, 
one of the most important and difficult things that we experienced as black people in Peru, especially black women, is the racist insult. You can walk in the street and people can spit in your face, just insult you. So, and when you mention that, it's very common that people in Peru say, no, this is not true although everybody has seen the situation. So back then, kind of 10 years ago, I decided to start a methodology to prove what we were saying. And with my group, uh, the methodology was we analyzed 11,000 editions of newspaper along seven years. Every day, we bought seven newspaper, the printed version, and we review to identify the treatment that they have against black people. We scan it or take pictures and we created a monthly report, an annual report, and we organized press conferences to invite newspapers and journalists to see what they are talking about us. So we created a whole system of categorization. For example, how many racist insults we identify in newspapers in Peru in one month in six months, in one year. What are the categories of these insults? One, we're more connected to the hypersexualization, the animalization of black people. So we invited journalists to a very fancy hotel with a very, uh, very good breakfast. And really, we were able to reduce the racist insult in the media and also in the street. We have clear indicators of this transformation, but we invested eight years and we analyzed 11,000 editions of newspaper. So why I mentioned that? Because maybe because we are artists, we think, okay, just let's find a very basic way how you are going to prove what you are saying. You just need to collect proofs. This is the proof. So there is no really too much sophistication, but it's more just Think and use what you what you have around to transform your reality from a different perspective, and that was, that is a clear example of what we were doing. Yeah, thank you for that example, and it, it's so true. I mean, we see that in many parts of the diaspora, but particularly here in the U.S. as well. Kind of the way that media narratives can be shaped, or the, the things that are sometimes subtle and oftentimes not subtle at all that we know are kind of perpetuating. Um, you know, the injustices or some of the, uh, the false ideologies about our people and about our experience. And so um, we know that we still have plenty of work to do to up, you know, to upend those narratives and to get in, in a space that tells our stories in ways that are accurate, that are complex, that are diverse, that are from different perspectives. Um, and so Suki, I wonder if you might use this platform to tell us a little bit about your story as an entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about what you're learning, some of the, the lessons that you would pass on to folks who might be trying to go in your path, especially Black women who were pursuing entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think um, as many entrepreneurs say that it's important that, that you step into something that um, if you can, that it doesn't feel like work you know, that's connected to some, something outside of you, something, something, something greater, something um, that's a part of your value system. Uh, because there will be many, many, many long 4 a.m., 5 a.m. nights of putting in a lot of hours and a lot of time to see this vision come to life. So there has to be something beyond you that you feel connected to. Um, but, you know, in, in many ways, you know, this uh, journey of mine was so organic and was, um, was really, like I said, sort of this answer to this question of, 
feeling like I deserved to live a life that I was proud of, where I deserved to live a life where my full authentic self could be recognized and that I wasn't needing to sort of suppress some of my gifts or even change the way that I communicate when I was in certain rooms. Um, and that meant that I had to carve out a path for myself. Um, and I think what I've learned, uh, you know, throughout that process is that many entrepreneurs have no idea what we're doing. So let's just clarify that. There's, you know, I didn't study this, um, you know, and many of us don't. It is in many ways the school of the hard knocks. Um, but if we know anything about women, black women, if we know anything about people of color is our ability to be resilient and scrappy and creative and to turn uh, something small into something incredible. Um, and so I think right now in particular, um, I think we're starting to see so many people find their voice or particularly in the midst of this pandemic when they're starting to shift and reimagine what their career path is um, and how they're wanting to live in, the, in this world, you're finding people that are sitting at home that are now dreaming up, well, what do I actually like? You know, what am I actually good at? You know, and they're, they're having a little bit more time to reimagine that. Um, and so for anyone that's, that's considering the path of entrepreneurship, it is so remarkably rewarding and empowering uh, to, to carve out your own path, but to know that there are resources, there's so many resources, there's so many communities, there's so many mentors, there's so many um, grants, there's so many um, fellowship and accelerators. There's really, it's a beautiful time for people to come up with an idea and for there, be, for there to be a space where it's receptive to it. Um, and I think, you know, I've also recognized that, like, I try to um, craft my company in, um, I guess you could say sort of an anti-capitalist capacity in the sense that, um, you know, if one of my team members, if one of the young ladies that are working for me, I hire local high school students, uh, young women, um, you know, if they're experiencing, um, whether it's a breakup or if they're experiencing a loss in the family or for whatever reason, their mental or emotional, if they just don't have it to give that day, I very much so uh, try to represent this idea of rest, rest and wellness and self-care. I can't promote a self-care brand, which is candles and relaxation if I'm not also representing that in the brand is how I, how I live the ethos of the company. Um, and so I think people are resonating with that. You know, I, I, I've never wanted the company to be sort of a buy, buy, buy. You know, I don't want people to buy candles because they saw an ad for it or because um, they were they received a handful of emails and marketing. I want people to come to this because they need uh, something to enhance their space or because it's part of their self care practice. So it's important to me to to create a um, you know a high quality um, product that we make with intention and with consciousness and that we're deliberate about how we're making things. Um, and I think that's reflected in how we reflected in how we do the work. It's reflected in our customers that see and feel that. Um, but it's an exciting time for entrepreneurship. And we're seeing a lot of people have these ideas that they never would have thought would have taken off. And they just sit, they sit down for a little bit and they try and fail and try and fail. But the idea that, um, that there's receptivity to it is exciting. Um, and so, yeah, I'm excited to see over the next couple of years, how many more people give birth to these ideas that have been sort of sitting there, but they maybe didn't have the um, platform or they didn't really have the inspiration to pursue. Um, but if I could figure it out and I had, you know, I'm, I study sociology, I have a master's in public health. I really, should, <laughs> and yet here we are, you know, so, um, so yeah, I think it's just an exciting time. And I think our, our generation is starting to kind of pursue their dreams and, and, and they might be wild. They might be some of the most unimaginable things that they could have considered, but 
um, you know, when you when you dial into sort of passion in that way, you'll see your community come come behind you and applaud that path very quickly. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing with us. And yeah, uh, we've dropped the link in there, so I'm sure you'll be getting a few more folks interested uh, in the brand. We have some amazing uh, questions coming in from the audience, so I want to pass it over to Ladarian to walk us through some of those. And if you have folks who haven't had a chance to send a question over, if you have one, please drop it in the chat, and we'll try to integrate it to the conversation. And could I say something? Could I say something yes, right quick? Please, of course. Uh, um, Silky, you 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 mentioned that you had an anti-capitalist. Uh, I would say you also have a, a very feminist ethic too, in, in in terms of what you describe. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily put that in your brand, but it is clearly also very feminist. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so now I have to jump in and definitely say hi, Spellman sisters. <laughs> I think we're having a, a spell house reunion right now. Right. So shout out to, to Morehouse too for Ryan <laughs> being on. So um, for the first question that came in, just because it's, it's Black History Month, would love for each of you to share one thing you do throughout February, just to highlight, commemorate the contributions um, of the African diaspora. So maybe we start with Dr. Guy Sheftall first, and then Monica, and then Suki. Dr. Sheftall, you're muted. <laughs> so uh, let me just say, I don't, I can't think of anything more urgent now with the attacks on critical race theory, the attacks on talking about race in schools, the banning of books about slavery and race and what school boards are doing. So, so what, what I've been doing is, is just being loud and in your face about the importance of Black History Month and the importance of talking about Black people and race wherever I can. So resisting this move to not uh, focus on uh, the uh, nature of Black history. So, so I'm in a resistance mode. I love it, Dr. Guy Sheffield. I love it. <laughs> and I'm so jealous I was never able to take one of your courses, but just now I might pop up one day in your class. So just be ready. <laughs> Monica, what about you? How do you celebrate this month, kind of from a global perspective as well? Um, I celebrate, uh, well, first celebrating our achievements because it's very important to remember what we already have and not just fight against something, but also remember that we have the right to celebrate. And for example, we just, the last year was created the International Day of People of African Descendants know that UN approved that, I think it's in September. Now, each year, officially, we have a day for people of African descendants. We also have that the senior of people of African descendants from 2015 to, to no, uh, 2015, yes, to 2025, that was approved by UN. So that is something that I know that some people are too far from international policy, but I think it's very important because if we embrace that, we have always more room, more right, more space to talk to our people, to the governments, to whoever we want. We are here and we are here to celebrate, but also to achieve some transformations, to reform public policy, affirmative action. This is something that we are fighting right now. We are not necessarily in the same stage that in the US because we didn't have this affirmative action policy. This is something kind of new and we are still working on that. And this is something that we want to remember always. Love that. Thanks for sharing, Monica. And Suki, what about you? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I was uh, did, did an interview yesterday and um, the 
question came up about why, why it's important to me or why it is that I hire women of color in my organization. Why is it that I'm hiring black women? Why is it I'm hiring that? Why, why is it that I'm hiring Latina women? So, um, you know, I think it's important to me to, to remain firm in that and to, and to express that that's part of the ethos. That is part of the, the identity of this company. And it's unapologetically so. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not only, I go out of my way to hire black women, you know, uh, this is a job that is exclusively and specifically held for, for women. Um, and, you know, and, and I'm finding that over time, you'll get questions about that. And, and, um, and I think it's important, particularly in this month for, for me to reiterate why that is, because there's so, I mean, so many spaces where that's not the case. <laughs> so why don't we try to carve a, a different path here? And I'm going to go out of my way specifically to hire people who might have a, a challenging path to um, seeing their, their full employment opportunities elsewhere. I think the other thing too is from, from um, you know, I, I'm, I am still a business owner. Um, and it means that um, I'm also unapologetic about my prices during this <laughs> for certain <laughs> in certain environments. Um, you know, there's no no discounts this month. We're, you're paying full price, and <laughs> so um, you know that's something that you know. There's some flexibility throughout the year, but particularly this month. And it's also you know I'm saying that in light, but it's also because it's important to me to take care of my team and uh, to see if they can't, you know, uh, if I can't bring in livable wages for them to some extent as well. So it's important that, that the resources are uh, distributed evenly and efficiently, so. <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Suki. So I had another question to come in that kind of builds on this a little bit. And I think it builds on what Dr. Guy Sheftall said too. I think we are starting to experience a little bit of pushback and the, the fight for like equality, especially here in the US, but I think we're seeing it globally. I would love for each of you to maybe share um, what keeps you all inspired or what's maybe your hope for change over the next couple of years, I think as we come out of this pandemic for black communities in particular. So maybe let's start with Monica first and then Suki and then Dr. Guy Sheftall. Sure. Uh, could you just repeat the last phrases because I have a dog who was crying. <laughs> no worries at all. Just would love for you to share um, maybe your hope or what keeps you inspired um, about Black communities around the world or maybe what you're hoping to see change over the next few years to kind of keep us in the right movement towards equality for all. Sure. Um, I think like I have always a lot of uh, um, expectation, and I think that it is possible to achieve some transformations. Uh, uh, I think that it's very important to be specific and particular when we are talking about Black people, because in the case of Latin America, you know, we from the Andes, we are not the same from the Caribbean. This is absolutely like a different culture. And I think that while we are talking about Blackness, I encourage everybody to, to remember that we are really different. But because of that, we can establish a lot of alliance because if we value the differences, we can be strong because I don't want to be with people that is like, like me always, no, I want something different. And this is the key of success. Just mentioned that recently, we were able in Peru with organization 
to include a racist insult as a category of gender violence in the intake forms when women are reporting gender violence. No, this is something approved in the 210 national centers ruled by the Ministry of Women. So when people are going to report gender violence, now there is a category that includes racist insult and also an ethnic category. And that kind of reform, even if it's something very specific, is kind of will transform no the whole country because we are going to know what is going on with Afro-descendant women and also with indigenous women. So I think that that path is something for me and for everybody in my group very interesting because we are going to collect data, know where where we are, and because of that we will be able to design things uh, that will be specifically connected to what we need. No, yeah. Love that. And Monica, if you have any um, data you want to share with us or research papers you've published, please send them to me. I think people would love to read them and see some of the work that you've been doing in Peru. <laughs> Perfect. Suki, what about you? Yeah, you know, I think um, one of the things that has been refreshing um, and, and also sort of healing in this journey is, is not needing the permission of anyone else, not needing the approval, validity, permission um, of, of our journey. And it has meant that we could kind of put our, could put these blinders on, you know, um, like I'm the only one that needs to be okay with how I'm running things. I'm the only, only one that needs to approve anything that we're doing. Um, and there's a sense of, and I think a lot of us felt that at Spelman, we sort of felt like our shoulders could kind of come down because we could talk from an authentic uh, place within ourselves in classrooms. We could, our, you know, everyone in our dorm hall was experiencing the same hair stuff that we were. So we could share hair products together. Or we could share, you know, like we all had, you know, there's this shared sisterhood. There's this shared sort of fellowship amongst us. Um, and it meant that we could, could sort of really relish in that, you know, really celebrate. Um, uh, celebrate what it meant to not be bombarded perpetually with so much noise and feedback and criticism and in, in ways that we were so used to having to kind of pinch into these little holes in order to be seen. And, um, and I think I've, I have found that same breath, if you will, in my business, in the sense that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking to, uh, to I, yeah, I guess I could say I'm not looking to appease or, or, or ask for permission from anyone else. And I think that when we were able to put our head down in that way, it really allows for us to excel in a really beautiful way because we're in our own space sort of unapologetic. Like our brand is decidedly black. Like we're very clear on that. You know, we're very clear on, on our values. And I think that, um, you know, my perspective has kind of been, you can, you know, be a part of the journey or not, but we're going to be successful either way, you know, because our community is behind what we're doing. So um, I think that, that uh, to the extent that, um, you know, we can, yeah, I guess we can continue shifting the conversation away from like, well, what do they think about what we're doing? What do we think about what we're doing? And how do you know, how does that feel? Um, because that's a, a, it's an, it's a very different place of empowerment. Um, when, when we're uh, calling those shots, if you will, on our own. Um, and so I'm excited to see, uh, particularly a lot of us young people, I'm excited for us to sort of step into our, into our power in that way. Love that, Suki. And I think it's really highlighting that that importance, the important aspect, I think, of agency, right? And starting to look inside yourself and empowering yourself from within. So thank you. Thank you for highlighting that. Dr. Guy Sheftal, we'll get a last word from you here. 
and you're muted again, Dr. Guy Sheffel. <laughs> it looks like still muted. Try one more time. Okay. Sorry. There we go. <laughs> okay. Uh, in the spirit of celebration, I want to celebrate the guilty verdict that those three guys got in the murder of Armor of Armory, a mostly white jury in the South who uh you know, that's a hate crime. It's a hate crime, which is very hard. So we, we, we can be really despondent about how horrible racism still is in the U.S., but when we have these moments, as I did this morning, when the guilty verdict came back and I saw the parents of Ahmed Armory, I got a little bit hopeful that it is possible, even with the majority white jury in the South, to have justice for an egregious murder of a, of, a, of a black person who was just simply walking, uh, running. <laughs> Thanks for highlighting that, Dr. Guy Sheffield. I think I, I totally agree with you. I think um, as we continue to push and to protest and to speak out, right, we're starting to see laws change. We're starting to see people's perspectives change. We're starting to see juries change, right, their perspectives. So thank you for highlighting that. So Ryan, I'm gonna pass it back over to you for our last question for the speakers. Yes, um, and thank you again to our amazing speakers. I, I share that perspective, Dr. Guy Sheftal, just that, that spark of optimism um, as we march forward and as we build allyship and as we you know, potentially see hearts and mindsets change across different communities and backgrounds in hopes that we might all march towards our collective freedom and liberation. So I, I'm standing with you and hoping that, that that ends up being the path forward where you know we can see better days for all of us. Um, as we wrap up, we always close out Tuesday Talks by asking our speakers to share with us one thing that you're doing to create joy in your world these days or something that's bringing you tremendous joy. Um, so let's hear first from Suki, then we'll hear from Monica and we'll get our last word from Dr. Gashef talk today. Um, yeah, that's a beautiful question. I could sit and relish and think about that one. All <laughs> that's a good one. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of this really off the top of my head because I'm getting ready to go meet her husband in just a couple minutes. Um, so last year I um, reached out to a, a NGO that's here in Seattle. It's called World Relief Seattle and they work with refugees that are newly arrived in the country. And I, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm looking to sort of build this um, uh, purpose-driven uh, organization or purpose-driven company. So I reached out to them and, and um, they, they brought me this incredible mother of two. They had just arrived in the country in June from Afghanistan and were really sort of trying to get their bearings in the country. She speaks no English. Um, and so they brought in a translator and they've trained her to, to she does all of the labeling for the candles. So she kind of does the wraparound label for the tins. Um, and I felt like that was a simple enough task where she didn't necessarily need to speak any English. So we'll come in and we just smile at each other. We'll try to fumble our way through the Google translation apps. And um, she has just brought so much joy into our lives. And I'm, I'm particularly excited because turns out she was pregnant as she was leaving Afghanistan to come to the U.S. And uh, so she's getting ready to give birth any day now. And I'm just, I'm, I'm so excited because she's just, you know, welcoming her into the studio, um, her family, she brings her four-year-old son who's just kind of running around the studio and patiently waiting while his mother's working. Um, and uh, she's just brought me an incredible amount of joy. Um, and um, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that she's, her, her and her family have just gone through an incredible journey of, of fleeing their country and coming to establish a home here. but 
for a black woman to provide employment space for her as her first sort of entry into the country felt really good for me. Um, but to know that she's, you know, any day now welcoming uh, her third child is just, it's, I'm excited. So that's my joy. <laughs> Monica, what about you? What's bringing you joy these days? Uh, I am a crochet artist. I am doing a lot of crochet. I am working on big, big pieces. Uh, but I think crochet is more for meditation, but poetry and music always. And I have been collaborating with some projects that really I like a lot, especially I like to collaborate with elders. My latest project uh, on December last year was with an elder from Colombia, uh, Petrona Martinez, 80, 80 years old. She's an Afro-Colombian cantadora from the Palenques. And I supported the whole project, and, but also the album won a Grammy, a Latin Grammy. So that was something important because it's just to have the possibility to work with a project where a black woman and elder from a rural area can have this international space to talk about who is she through the music. And four years ago, I collaborated with other albums or from Colombia, from a Palenque, from Galicia, no? I really enjoy a lot. And I think when I am working with elders, I just are like, I shame a lot, no? Because I established a different relation, no? I respect what they are telling me. They talk to me as a grand este, daughter and I just learn a lot. But using poetry and music, you always have something fun, no? That kind of reduce any kind of hierarchy because we are collaborating as poets and musicians. So that is... And thank you. And thank you for sharing your art with us. I'm excited to, to experience more of that. Uh, we really appreciate the work that you're doing. Dr. Guy Sheftal, over to you for the last word. What's bringing you joy these days? Okay, what's, what's, what's bringing me joy is decorating a runaway house with lots of art that I had stored all kinds of places because I had run out of space at home. But the second thing that's bringing me joy is working on a big coffee table book on Black women's domestic spaces. We, we know we know very little about, we know a lot about black women in the workforce or in public spaces, but I am having such joy collecting photographs and thinking about going into black women's homes and seeing how they uh, create refugees, refuge and domestic spaces. So I'm getting a lot of joy from that. And let me say, Ryan, you are a great moderator. Oh, thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. That is a high compliment. I'll take that. Seriously. Thank you so much. Um, well, on that positive note, and we can't, I want to see that book. I'm excited to see uh, that whenever it's ready for, for us to look at. So that's, that sounds fascinating and really cool. With that said, we're towards the end of our time. Anybody who's able and willing, please turn on your camera, turn on your microphone, join me in giving a round of appreciation and applause to our amazing speakers for today. Thank you so much. Excellent. We'll keep the chat open for a few more minutes. Everyone, please stick around. DJ Sofa, take us out with another great set. Thank you all for being with us today.